Welcome to Minor League Musician. I'm your host, Tom Reardon, and I've been a minor league musician for over 30 years. These are the stories of the bands I've been in and the records I've made. So welcome back. Last time, I talked about my first band, Religious Skid, and I'll probably go back to that story every once in a while because there's some, there's some good stuff there. But I want to talk today about how my first really active band, my second band, but my first really active band, Hillbilly Devil Speak, came about. Now, Religious Skid wrapped up in 1990, and I think I may have mentioned that I moved to California in early 1991, and that definitely was cemented the end of Religious Skid happening. And while living in Berkeley, I, I definitely wanted to join a band, but I just didn't know enough people, and I definitely didn't have any gear, and at the time, I didn't um, really play an instrument that well. I had a guitar, but I was not very good at it. Um, I probably thought I was a little better at it than I was, but I wasn't very good at it. And it was just an acoustic. In fact, it was uh, it was an acoustic guitar that my friend Tim Livingston, may he rest in peace, helped me get, and it was a classical acoustic, so it was definitely not good for creating punk rock music, although um, I'm sure somebody like Beck would have argued with me. But anyway, I lived in Berkeley for about six months um, until the, the money just ran out. Uh, it was the most expensive place at the time that I'd ever lived, and, and, and on a scale, still the most expensive place that I've ever lived, um, even today in 2020 almost 30 years later. But I came back to Phoenix um, in August of 1991 and had aspirations to do music. Um, in fact, even jammed a little bit with some buddies, um, my friend Shelton Valentine. We jammed together. Uh, we got and Chris Bird and Steve Aidy, who had played drums in, in Religious Skid to, with uh, Scene, um, Colcord, and we, we had a little jam session. That, we did a few of those, actually, but nothing came of it. Uh, we were going to do two vocalists, because, again, I didn't really play an instrument, although I did, I did pick up the bass for a practice or two, and, uh, and that really kind of pushed me down the path thinking strongly about the bass again. Now, that that was probably in 1992, um, and I started getting really serious about school then. Uh, I finished up at Phoenix College and enrolled at ASU and started taking on some pretty massive student loans, but one of the byproducts of that was being able to purchase a little bit of gear here and there. And I was still working at Easy Street sandwich shop that my mom and my aunt owned and so I started looking at the ads in new times for people who wanted to start bands and I saw this ad and it said interested in uh, ministry and Bauhaus and I'm trying to think what the other 
influence was, but it intrigued me, so I responded, and it was this guy named Terry Carlino. And Terry had moved to Phoenix with his parents. He was a couple years older than I was. But he moved to Phoenix with his parents, and he was and he was looking to start a band. He had been in a band called Hash Palace from from the Dallas area that had had you know a little bit of success and played some great shows. Uh, he used to like to tell me about all the cool bands that he played with, and one of which was Nirvana, who at that point uh, Cobain was still alive and, and making new music. And Terry and I clicked. We met out at in Tempe at uh, Tower Records when it was still there on Mill and University and we talked and we decided all right you know let's let's jam and at that point I had I had picked up my first electric guitar I fell in love with this green Gibson Sonics that uh, my buddy Jerry Myers and Shelton Valentine had at the pawn shop that they worked at, and I, I picked that up, and I got myself a little PV 50-watt uh, practice amp, and I started making noise. And so Carlino and I got together, and I found a, a custom PA, one of the old tuck-and-roll jobs. If you've seen them, you know what I'm talking about of a faux leather exterior on the speakers and the PA head itself. I picked that up for I think a hundred bucks and so we had a PA, I had a guitar, Terry of course was a really good guitar player. He played uh, through a Les Paul, through a classic Marshall uh, JCM 800 I think but don't quote me on that, I'm, I'm definitely not the gear guy that some some of my friends are and, and gals too but anyway Terry and I started writing these songs and he had a few riffs um, I had a few riffs that that eventually made it into what would become Hillbilly Doublespeak but we didn't have didn't have a drummer and didn't have a bass player and we but we would sit in the spare room at the condominium that I lived in with my my girlfriend at the time and and write these songs, and we were we were kind of digging them. Um, there was there was something there, so we decided to put some more ads out in the New Times. I wish I had the, the actual text from the New Times ads that we started placing to find our rhythm section. Um, I'm sure that they did mention Bauhaus, and uh, I think we probably added Butthole Surfers, and I'm not sure if we left Ministry in there, but Carlino and I had been jamming for a few months and, and really starting to click. And he had a four-track that we recorded some of these riffs on with some, some of my early lyrics. I probably still got cassette tape somewhere with those on them. We wanted something to, to play for folks so they'd have an idea of what we were going for. And I noticed one day, um, 
And Carlino was a great guitar player. He he was one of those musicians who, if you could get under his skin a little bit, if he was irritated about something or mad, um, he played amazing. He would get noisy and wild and weird and and he was a classically trained guitar player. He had he used to tell me that he had taken lessons for 20 years and he could play anything. Um, if he was in a good mood, for example, he sounded he would have fit right in with Pearl Jam. He could just play those riffs all day long and, and play in that style. He was that good. Um, but when he got mad or was upset or agitated about something, it was that's when the magic happened with Carlino. So he also had some interesting quirks and and you know and I'm not speaking ill of the dead here Carlino passed away about a decade ago and and I'll, I'll talk about that more in further episodes but uh, he had some quirks he liked mirrors so if he could catch his reflection in something um, it would it, it was hard to get him to come back to whatever conversation or whatever you were doing sometimes and I remember we were bouncing some of the some of the four track demo stuff that we were working on right off the bat we were bouncing it down onto cassette tapes so that we could you know share them with the people who were responding to our ads and and I had one of those stereos that had a glass door um, on the stereo case and and I caught him checking himself out in the reflection of that and and it just kind of, you know, it stuck with me now for, for 20, I was probably 1990, end of 1992, early 1993. Um, and it, it stuck with me all this time that it just, I just thought found it to be very entertaining. But anyway, um, we started getting responses to our ads and, and uh, one of the more interesting ones initially was uh, Tom Coffeen from Beats the Hell Out of Me, which was a great local band um, in those days. He played guitar in Beats the Hell Out of Me, but he wanted to play drums in a band, and he responded to our ad, and we went and jammed with him, and it, it probably would have been pretty cool, but uh, for whatever reason, Carlino just wasn't digging it and wanted somebody who who was stronger on the drums, and, and so we kept looking, and we found... Um, E.J. Turbovich, who uh, had been in a band called Royce Union here in the Phoenix area, and um, you know had had a great kind of cool, quirky style that that really fit. So we were not having a easy time finding a bass player, um, and I talked to a friend of mine, Jeff Sari, who worked at Eastside Records out by ASU and he played bass and he was like well I'm, you know, I'll jam with you guys and and so that was the kind of early you know band formation of what would become Hillbilly Devil Speak we didn't have that name at the time and so Jeff and Terry and, and EJ and I would would jam in Jeff's house in Tempe and we had this you know kind of group of songs I think we had four or five songs that Terry and I had put together and we'd jam on them and and I was gonna play rhythm guitar 
over some of it um, and sing. And I was starting to build my, you know, I'd bought that custom PA and I started getting a few effects because I really love the butthole surfers and I like what Gibby Haynes does with his vocals. So I started getting some effects to, to sing through. I think the first one I got was a MIDI verb, uh, Elisa's MIDI verb, and, and that could do some fun stuff. Um, and then uh, and then I got an Effectron, and that could do some really fun stuff. A lot of great delays and, and um, you know, nice reverbs, and you know, it could make it sound like, well, it could do a lot of the things that, that Gibby did in the Bubble Surfer, so I was stoked on that. And then, um, you know, we jammed with, with Jeff for a couple months and, and it just wasn't really gelling. And, and what we would find out is during practice breaks, I would often pick up Jeff's bass uh, and it, and it, it was fun to play. And I could play the riffs better than Jeff could. So Jeff... Um, you know, he and I talked because he wasn't, he, he and Carlino really weren't gelling well, but he and I talked and, and we decided that it's probably better for he and I to maybe try to do something on our own. And so and we did that, and that's another story. But, uh, and it, he would step away from, you know, the band that was forming with Terry and EJ and I. So Jeff left. We decided we would be a three piece and I would get a bass and a bass amp, which, uh, you know, I had to wait for my next installment of student loans to kick in so that I could do that, but that's not true. That's not true. I did have, I had enough money saved up to buy the bass, um, so I had been saving up for another guitar, and I, so I bought a bass instead. I bought a 1985 Rickenbacker with Bartolini pickups, and it sounded amazing, uh, mean and nasty in all, all the right ways. And then I got myself an, an Ampeg SVT3 head and an Ampeg 810 cabinet, so I had plenty of, of firepower from the, the bass side. And since we couldn't practice at Jeff's anymore, we started practicing at Easy Street on Saturday afternoons after the restaurant closed at, at 2 o'clock. And I'd move a few tables out of the way and we'd bring our gear in there and we'd play because there was, there was nobody to bother with the sound. And, we started writing songs, um, kind of like just Mad Men, but, and we've decided we needed to, we needed to practice more, because we could only really practice on the weekends at Easy Street, so we decided to rent a practice room at Francisco Studios at 23rd and Palm Lane uh, by the fairgrounds in Phoenix, and we had room 16. We moved in there in uh, some point in 1993. I wish I could remember. It was probably summer, so it was probably super hot. We moved in there, and we started playing about every other day. My grandparents had helped me out with a pickup truck in 1993, so I didn't need... Carlino to come pick me up, or EJ to come pick me up, and then I had something, a way to move my gear around. Um, 
So we started practicing a lot. And I didn't need to borrow my girlfriend's car anymore either to get to practice if, if that was the case. So we started practicing about every other day. And um, so for, you know, for me, I was working at Easy Street during the day and then going to school. Um, I think in, in that, those days I was going to school on had all my classes on Tuesday and Thursday. So I'd work at Easy Street Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday to school Tuesday and Thursday and then we were practicing yeah every other day and we did that for about a solid year um, and I think we had about 30 songs before we ever actually played out now they weren't all fully realized songs um, but they were you know and a lot of the early hillbilly stuff and even the later hillbilly stuff was basically just one riff that uh, would morph into something similar, and I would shout things over it. Um, but we just jammed and jammed, and EJ and Terry and I formed a pretty tight three-piece unit, and you know, we spent a lot of time hanging out together. Uh, we went to a lot of good shows together. We'd, oftentimes we would practice and, and then go to a show, or sometimes we'd go to a show and then get so inspired by what we saw, we'd go back to the practice room and practice. And, and just kept writing songs. Um, I remember one particular time we went to see, well, there were two great shows that were very inspiring for us at this place called The Art Cage that Steve Naughton had. 1993, and maybe it was even into early 1994, I can't remember for sure, but we saw um, Girls Against Boys there, and we saw, oh, there was, the, we saw John Boy there, um, who was a trans syndicate band, the Girls Against Boys, who probably a lot of you have heard of, um, great band out of New York, and Ed Hall played there too. Um, Ed Hall was really fun for me, because at the end of their set, they would sometimes give, you know, their, their instrument to the, one of the audience members uh, to, to jam on it. And so the guitar player gave me his guitar at the end of their set, and I just started kind of attacking it and going off. And the drummer and bass player were into it, so I don't even remember how long we jammed for, but it was at least five minutes, maybe longer, and that just... You know, and that was definitely one where we, Terry and EJ and I, went back to the practice room after the show and jammed more. Um, we had we had a pretty cool little setup in old room 16 at San Francisco Studios in Phoenix, and we had a red light and a blue light and a strobe light, and we'd get all the different lights going and um, and rock out. And rock out totally sober. There were no there were no drugs involved in those days. Um, I'd gotten all my major partying out of the way before before doing any music. And I think I think I don't even think Terry would ever bring beer um, to the practice room in those days. So we would do all this sober. Um, and just like I said, kept writing writing songs. It's amazing to think about how many of those riffs um, we did not record and have been forgotten. Um, there was one in particular that I loved, and I, I think I have a, a cassette tape on it somewhere, but um, we called it Adrian Barbeau.
So we'd written all these songs, and in those days, early 90s, I became friends with Alex Newport, who was dating and then married um, the, one of the best friends of my girlfriend at the time. And Alex was in a band called Fudge Tunnel, and he was also getting started as a recording uh, engineer and, and producer. And so I was sharing with him the music that, that we were doing on, on Terry's four track, and he offered to help us make a demo. So he came and we, we made a demo first with with Terry's four track, and, and he set up some microphones in our practice room. And Terry had these great uh, microphones that he got at Radio Shack um, that were just a little, these little kind of very thin microphones that you would put up on the wall and they captured sound so great. They were great for drums and we used those in the first several uh, Hillbilly recordings, even the more pro ones we did. Um, but you know, Alex helped us make a demo and then I think at some point early on in 1994, we reached out to our friends um, James and Christopher who were in this band called Less Pain Product, great band, and they had a DAT recorder and so we uh, floated them a few bucks and they let us use the DAT for a weekend and Alex in our practice room did a really nice demo for us and it sounded really good. Um, in fact, some of the tracks are we used as bonus tracks on the first record that we put out, first CD. But we made that, and and Alex had to go back to to England to do some recording with Fudge Tunnel, and he took our demo with him. And we hadn't even played a show yet at this point. But he took our demo and gave it to Dave Riley, the bass player of Fudge Tunnel, who had this small record label called BGR. So Dave liked it and wanted to put out a seven inch. So we hadn't even played a show yet and we were gonna have a seven inch out on a small label from the UK. So I gotta be honest, um, I can look back on those days now with with uh, the perspective of of the 30-year uh, minor league musician that I am, and say that that went to my head a bit. Um, I hope that I wasn't a tremendous asshole to people, but it definitely changed my expectations for for how the band was going to be received and what we deserved. I tried to stay humble. I hope I did. Um, but I think some people I kind of rubbed the wrong way, and, and I know when, when the 7-inch came out, it definitely uh, presented some issues. But anyway, so we, we figured we probably should start playing some shows, and, uh, and the first time we Hillbilly Double Speak played live, and we, we had, we were named that by then, um, we had come up with a song, uh, Carlino had this riff that, that I wrote these lyrics to that were the song was called Hillbilly Devil Speak and and that the name of the band came from an experience that I had had in 19 
91, I'd gone back up to the Bay Area after moving back to Phoenix. I'd gone back up for the Halloween Dead shows with um, my friends Artie and Chris. And I think Artie has passed away too, if I remember correctly. Uh, but Chris, Chris Trechik is still alive. And we share the same birthday, by the way. So um, We went up to see the dead, and it was the, the weekend right after Bill Graham had died. So the, the shows were supercharged, and the first show that we went to um, would have been what, October 28th, 1991. We, we, it was a crazy, crazy evening because I didn't have tickets to the shows. Artie and Chris had tickets. I just went up for the ride so I could go see my friends in the Bay Area and have a good time. And I knew that the, the Dead shows would be a big party and, you know, have some fun. And so I'm in the parking lot of the Dead Show, kind of wandering around after Artie and Chris had, had already gone in to Oakland Coliseum, and I got a miracle. I ended up talking to this guy who had an extra ticket, his friend didn't show up, and he said, hey, you know, if, if my friend still hasn't shown up by, I don't remember what time, 7 o'clock or 7.30, something like that, the, you know, meet me back here and the ticket's yours. So I was like, cool, and um, you know, went around and, and you know, made my way through the uh, through the parking lot of the Dead Shows and or the Dead Show, and um, dropped dropped a little LSD and saw that it was time to meet up. And I go back, and there's the guy, and I'm like, yes, he's alone. I'm getting my ticket, and then. This young lady, this attractive young lady walks up and we're kind of looking at each other like, uh-oh. And my LSD is kicking in a little bit, so I probably have a huge grin on my face. And I think we all kind of had huge grins on our faces. And I'm like, what's up? And the guy's like, oh, well, I didn't know if you would come back, so I met this this girl, I can't remember what her name was, but, um, and I said, you know, that she could have the ticket, um, you know, again, if, if, if my friend or if you didn't show up, so I don't know what to do. And I think, you know, again, confusion was kind of the, 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 the thing of the moment there for all of us because we were having a good time in the dead parking lot. And so I suggested, well, how about we flip a coin? And, um, you know, that's the fair way to do it. And everybody agreed, so we flipped the coin, and I won. Um, I can still actually see the coin going up in the air because the, the drugs were definitely enhancing that effect of the coin flipping through the air. So I won, uh, the girl and I hugged, and I felt like karma was restored. So I go in. I have no idea where Artie and Chris are. Um, I am definitely feeling zero pain. Dead are just about to start, so I find my way up into the rafters of Oakland Coliseum, very top, very top row of Oakland Coliseum. And I went there because the there was a booth up there at the top, probably where radio broadcasters um, would sit and there was a light on up there. So when the lights went down as I'm walking up the steps and I could see the light, so I just kind of walked towards it. 
found a place to sit, and the show started. And I look over my shoulder and I see that, and this is, I, and I, I apologize, friends, I'm going off on a tangent here. I'm, I'm not talking about Hill Hill this week. But this is how we got the name. So I, I'm, I'm sitting there at the very top of Open Coliseum, and there's this booth, and there's a guy in there in the booth, and he's watching Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, which uh, was that classic 0-0 into the 10th um, inning. And so, uh, what was it, Minnesota and... Um, was it Minnesota and Atlanta? This is anyway, um, Minnesota and St. Louis. I forget, but the I watched the end of the game during the Grateful Dead's first set, um, which was amazing, um, and just having a blast. And then the set first set ends, and I'm like, all right, well, I'm gonna walk around a little bit. Maybe I maybe I can you know find Artie and Chris. And I walk down literally 10 rows, and there they are, right there. They've been right in front of me the whole time. I'd walk past them. Um, this is before cell phones, so there was no way to, you know, to reach out and say, hey, where are you guys at? So I find them. It's like serendipity. Um, we're all, you know, they're excited to see me that I got in. I'm excited to see them because, like, yes, I'm connected with my friends. And I don't have to worry about figuring out where we parked the truck and meet them back at the end, and blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, that's right, we hadn't even parked the truck there. We left the truck was in San Francisco, but that's, that's we'll get to that. So we enjoy the rest of the show. Um, Drums in Space were great, and Ken Kesey came out and read a poem for, for Bill Graham, and it was just supercharged evening. We're out, and there's just throngs of people super high on LSD, going to the BART station, because we had to go back to San Francisco, where we were staying that night. And we, like, are getting ready to get on the train, and I swear, people pulled us onto this train that was filled with every single freaky person that was at the Dead Show. So it was just visual overload, and too many people. And we get to the, the 13th Street BART station in Oakland so we can change trains. And um, I think it's 13th Street. You know, I could be wrong there again. But uh, we get to the BART station in Oakland to change trains. And all of a sudden, like, there's nobody there. So we go from, like, this massive visual overload to almost this kind of creepy... Like something out of you know that scene in American Werewolf in London where the guy is in the train station and, and David eats him, but there's there's uh, there's like well there's one other one other group of people like two girls and a guy who are kind of down the way a bit from us. So we finally the train comes and we get on and we're the only ones on the train car and the, these other folks that were on there they get in the same train car as us and they decide to sit like right across from us and. Um, so we're, we're in some of the seats in the BART train that faced each other, and the other group is in the, the same seats across the way, and we're talking a little bit. And, uh, they, you know, talking about the show, and, and, you know, all just having a blast, and, and uh, we get back to San Francisco, and 
we're walking to the place where we're staying and it's, you know, it's kind of late on a Wednesday night, um, or I forget what day, what, it, it, was a, it was a weeknight, I think, or it might have been a Sunday, the first show might have been on a Sunday, actually, if I remember, yeah, you know what, it was, it was a Sunday night, so it was late in San Francisco on a Sunday night after midnight, we didn't see anybody, which was very strange, um, you know, because we were all very high and, uh, my pockets were full of all kinds of fun things that I had had gotten in the parking lot at the Dead Show. And we go back to the apartment, which is empty, that we we're staying at because the, the guys who we were staying with, they went to school at UC Santa Cruz and would be down at school um, for part of the week and then back in San Francisco for the rest of the week. Get there, I think we're gonna have a blast. Um, there's beers in the fridge, and Artie and Chris proceed to pass out right away. Not sure what happened. Could have been some of the fun things in the pockets. I don't know. But I'm wide awake. So I'm sitting in this apartment on about the eighth floor of a building in San Francisco, looking out over the city um, with these great lights, and just enjoying myself until something must have happened because all of a sudden there was just all these sirens and what I could get from the sirens was it sounded to me like what a bunch of crazy hillbillies would be screaming if they were getting ready to go into battle or you know having some sort of like apocalyptic moment and that stuck with me and when Carlino this is you know, a long way to get to this when Carlino played me the riff of the song that eventually became Hillbilly Devil Speak which is on our first 7 inch I started thinking about that night and thinking about that what I was hearing in the audio hallucinations or auditory excuse me auditory hallucinations I was having and, and that they sounded like Hillbilly Devil Speak So we had our name, and we had songs, and we had a recording that was going, we got an offer to put out a 7-inch, so we started playing some shows. The first time we played was at the uh, Atomic Cafe, which is at Hayden and Scottsdale Road in Scottsdale, or no, Hayden, I'm sorry, Hayden and Roosevelt in Scottsdale, um, and which is now, uh, it's been a few things since it was Atomic Cafe, but it's still a music venue. And well, we'll see. We'll see what happens after the pandemic, if it's still a music venue out there or not. But it was the Atomic Cafe then, and they had an open mic on Wednesday or Thursday nights. So we went out there, and we got to play for four songs, I think. Three, three or four songs. And super nervous. But one of the songs that we played was Revenge of the Micronauts, which was the song that, that Dave Riley from Ludge Tunnel liked and wanted to put out on VGR. So 
did that and we played a few more shows kind of right off the bat I think we played the mason jar pretty quickly um, and Boston's I think was one of our first shows too Boston's isn't there anymore Boston's was on Hayden as well and um, kind of where the, the 202 is across from next to Big Surf across from the old drive-ins out there in Scottsdale but played a few shows and then went into Blue Sky Studios when Alex got back from recording I think what would have ended up being the last Fudge Tunnel record um, we went in the studio uh, thanks to BGR they gave us some money to go in the studio and we went into Blue Sky Recording which I don't know if that's there it was owned by this guy named Stu and recorded four songs that would go on the EP, um, the seven inch that we put out on BGR. And so that was my second time in a, in a real studio. Um, and this is 1994, summertime. Um, studio, not, not, you know, built in a garage off of Stu's house. Um, a nice, you know, nice little console area and, and some separation rooms he'd built in there um, out around the, the drum room. So it was, you know, it was kind of fun to see my friend Alex do his thing and, and we recorded on to uh, two inch tape, I believe. Um, Alex might correct me on that if he remembers. I believe it was two-inch tape, and then we um, did the drums first, and, and EJ did his thing, and, and I remember Alex being super frustrated with EJ because uh, EJ didn't really know super well how to tune the drums, so that took some extra time, and uh, you know, that time is money, as they say, and Carlino threw down his guitar parts, and I did the bass lines, which were super simple, but um, Alex made me sound great, and then did the vocals, and we had the idea of, on the, the last song, on, on the B-side, the A-side was Revenge of the Micronauts and Hillbilly Devil Speak, and the B-side was um, Pedophile and Restraining Order, and now Pedophile and Restraining Order were kind of two, each like one long riff that I just sort of shouted you know, pedophile over pedophile and, and re then restraining order restraining order excuse me over the song restraining order and at the end um, I put some some distorted effects on there and kind of looped this sound and we wanted BGR to make it a lock groove on that side so that once you got to that last bit, it just went over, went on over and over and over and over and over until you took it off. Um, we thought we were clever. And we sent the tape off, we dumped it down to a quarter inch uh, master, and uh, Alex took that back with him because he was going back to England. Uh, for mixing or they had a small tour or something with Fudge Tunnel so he took it back with them and I'd say about two months or so after that I got a box of 
207 inches from BGR and some money to send them out here in the States for, um, for review. It was a, it was a really cool process and we knocked them out. We had, I think we, we recorded in three days. Um, it was a really cool process to see the hard work because we had, as I mentioned, we'd been pretty much playing every other day together and we were about as tight as a noisy weirdo band could be. Um, so we were ready for the studio and, and it taught me that one of the things that it taught me right off the bat was you have to, you know, you, you have a finite amount of funds when you go in the studio typically and you have to be prepared. You know, I learned, I was prepared, um, but I learned watching Alex help EJ tune his drum kit that you know that was something that we should have been doing before the clock was running um, the time the money clock was running so you know and, and it was fun I mean at that point uh, Alex was you know about one of my best friends and you know my bandmates and I were spending tons of time together so we were very close and it was just it was really cool to do that project with those guys at that time in 1994 and, and like I said it did go to our heads a bit um, now Carlino had put out a 7 inch with Hash Palace but, but EJ hadn't hadn't had anything out yet and I didn't have anything out so you know, to have your first kind of output be on a you know albeit small label from England but it was really kind of kind of cool and something that that uh, gave me a strange view of how the music world worked because I thought for sure that that meant that you know we were on the road to bigger and bigger things hopefully I wasn't too unbearable to be around in those days um, you know we were humbled when we started playing those shows because a lot of people did not get what we were trying to do here in Phoenix. Um, it was very humbling, although you know, we, I always felt like if we can get a reaction out of people, that was better than them just standing there or just having a conversation with the person that they're at the bar with rather than listening to us. And, and we made those conversations very difficult because we played extremely loud. Um, that was kind of our, one of our things is that we, uh, a friend of mine said that we were like an auditory apartheid um, and you know, take that with whatever um, you want to take it with. But I think she was right in that we did sort of, we turned up super loud. It was not uncommon for sound men in those early days and pretty much all through um, Hillbilly Devil Speaks career that Sandman often were like, hey, you know, can you guys turn it down? Um, but we must have given off some sort of vibe that we might not turn it down because they were almost always very polite with us or willing to work with us and, and say back off the PA and just let our amps carry the sound for the room and just use the PA for vocals. Some sound men chose to fight with us and that's okay. Um, I can't, you know, we, we've used artwork for the 7-inch that I'd found in, the, in this book that a friend of mine had given me, my friend Dorothy had given me this book, um, that I, I still 
still have somewhere around here um, but it had us kind of those crazy sort of you know underground um, art and just it was about extremes it was called uh, ext American extremes I believe and, uh, and there was this picture in there of um, some circus workers so we we used that for and probably you know we had no permission or anything we just used it um, for the cover of the seven inch you know, pinhead playing the piano, but um, it it was a really I, I will never forget the day that the box of seven inches came. Um, you know, actually we got we did get test pressings before that, and that was super cool. Um, but uh, I'll never forget seeing the actual finished product and just thinking like, wow, I made this. And, we put it out for we got some we got some good reviews on it and we got some really horrible ones um alex had a buddy who worked for kerrang magazine and she submitted it to kerrang and it went to like the worst possible person to review it and he gave us 1k out of 5k's and said something along the lines of you know what alex newport is doing working with this is beyond him um I think, you know, some people kind of liked it, some people didn't get it, some people didn't like it, but it was a start, and it definitely, it definitely gave me uh, a serious addiction to recording music. Um, I'm going to talk more about Hillbilly Devil Speak, because we made three full-length records after that, and had a, you know, a pretty interesting and fun career a lot of different people played in the band over the years um, you know the, on that first one it's just Carlino and, and EJ and I and at that we had dubbed at some point we had dubbed EJ the boy so I had become Tom Hillbilly and a lot of people knew me as Tom Hillbilly in those days um, Carlino was the great Carlino and EJ was the boy that's what it says. That's who, who, who the credit is given to on the back of the record is the great Carlino and the boy and uh, and Tom Hillbilly. So um, you can and you can get those on Discogs. Fair, uh, you know. Last time I looked, there was you know, five or six available from. I think about $5 to about $30, so hopefully somebody's making a little money off of it since I don't think we ever really saw, we never saw any money off of it. And uh, you know, one of the other great stories I have about that particular seven inches that in the, I don't know, I'd say 90, 1995 or six, um, Jello Biafra came to do spoken word at, at Boston's and I went and I knew that Jello was a big record collector, so I, I had a seven inch and I, I took it to give to him along. And at that point, no, actually, no, it it was past then. It was, it was, um, it had to be, yeah, I guess ninety six or ninety seven, because um, we had we'd already, we'd already put out our first uh, our first full length record, and it was ninety seven. I had a copy of that too, and I 
took it to give to Jello, and I you know, got waited my turn to talk to him, and got up and we talked, and and I handed him his gifts, and he looked at the seven inch first, and he said, um, "Oh, I've got this. This is good." And you know that that pretty much made my whole life at that point. Um, and he went on to explain that you know for some reason the the label had sent him um, the seven inch, and the reason being, looking back, was that Dave was hoping to get distribution in the United States for BGR, and he thought Jello might be able to help. So, a little bit of fun, fun trivia there. But it was very, very cool to know that not only did Jello have the record, he remembered it, and he complimented me on it. And and he also told me that the seven or the CD that I was giving him, he had listened to the day before because my friend Will Anderson who had driven Jello from Tucson to Phoenix, and they listened to it on uh, on the way. And so that was nice of Will to do as well. So we will talk more about Hillbilly Devil Speak, and um, there's a lot to unpack there. This has been a long episode, so thank you for bearing with me, and thank you for bearing with my... I'm not a gear person, like I said, so thank you for bearing with um, the recording quality here. Um, I, will, I will get better, I promise. Um, and thank you for listening. This has been Minor League Musician. We'll see you next time. <laughs>